Hello and welcome to the BJ Psych Open podcast. Uh, my name is Gish Pishka. I'm the digital content editor of the BJ Psych Open. And today I'm joined by three special guests who are three of the authors on a series of papers in the BJ Psych Open. And these papers are associated with the SIRE study, that's S-I-R-E, Social Influences on Recovery. Before I go on, I'll just say a content warning. We're going to be talking about a terrorist attack today, about the bombing of the Manchester Arena. And we'll mostly be discussing services provided for people who were there, services provided in the months and years after the attack. But aspects of the incident itself may come up in the discussion. Okay, so I'll just introduce our guests before I introduce the paper itself. First, we have Dr. John Stankham. Dr. Stankham was a consultant clinical psychologist working in the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Specialty of Pennine Care NHS Foundation Trust until retiring from clinical work in 2015. Following retirement, he's provided part-time consultancy and training to the NHS and other agencies. In the immediate aftermath of the Manchester Arena attack in 2017, he was asked to provide early support in establishing the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub, uh, a service hosted by the Pennine Care NHS Trust to help people across the UK who are experiencing problems resulting from the arena event. In 2018, he became the principal investigator for Project SIRE, that's the study I just mentioned, Social Influences on Recovery Inquiry. Uh, which was a research programme conducted by Pennine Care NHS Trust, looking at the impact of the arena event on survivors' well-being and the experiences of psychosocial care that affected their coping and recovery. Uh, second, we have Professor John Drury, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Sussex. He works on collective behaviour in disasters and emergencies and advises governments on behaviour in relation to emergency responses. And last but not least, we have friend of the show and the first person to return to the podcast after having previously been on it, Professor Richard Williams, who is Emeritus Professor of Psychiatry at the University of South Wales and Director of the Psychosocial and Mental Health Project for the Faculty of Pre-Hospital Care of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh. Richard advises governments and professional organisations on managing the psychosocial aspects of emergencies, disasters and major incidents. And in Richard's last appearance on the podcast, we discussed a paper that he co-wrote with Dr. Esther Murray about the effects of working through the pandemic on healthcare professionals and how we might provide better psychosocial, environmental and structural support for them. And we're actually going to cover some of the same themes today, particularly to do with primary and secondary stresses. But today's paper is entitled Trajectories of Distress and Recovery, Secondary Stresses and Social Cure Processes in People Who Use the Resilience Hub After the Manchester Arena Bombing. So as you can tell from the title, it's to do with providing support for people after the terrorist attack that happened at the Manchester Arena. And as I mentioned, it's the most recent paper in a series of, I think, four so far, and we'll link to all of them in the show notes. And I'll just give a quote from one of the previous papers to set up what we're talking about. So this is the quote. On 22nd May 2017, a suicide bomber detonated an improvised explosive device in the foyer of the Manchester Arena after a concert, killing 22 people and himself and physically injuring 239 children and adults. Definitive numbers for those present at the arena attack are unclear, but with the inclusion of staff and first responders, it is estimated at 19,500. The Manchester Resilience Hub, or the Hub, was established in the immediate aftermath of the incident to manage the psychosocial impact of the event, including trauma responses shortly after the incident and those that emerged over time. The Hub uses a proactive outreach model, taking a stepped care approach, so universal, targeted and specialist allowing a flexible response to meet the differing needs of groups and individuals and adapt personal treatment pathways accordingly. So that's the end of the quote. So Dr. Stankham, we're going to start with you. I'm going to ask you to summarise the paper as a whole. But first, could you give us a bit of background and let us know what we already knew about this area? Yeah, we know that distress after emergencies, major incidents and disasters is common among people affected and, and this can have um, serious psychosocial consequences and leave them with functional impairment. The recent literature has shown that these consequences can endure for months and in some cases many years. Unfortunately in practice it can be difficult to predict who will become most affected in the short and longer terms. What we do know is that the great majority of people affected 
don't meet the criteria for mental health disorders and so have to rely on psychosocial care provided by their informal networks, such as friends, families and colleagues, and, if they're available, the official response services. We use the term psychosocial care to differentiate it from the mental health care provided by primary health care and specialist mental health services. In its broadest definition, psychosocial care is any form of psychologically informed social care in which people set out to bolster the recovery environment of people affected by major incidents and providing them with actual assistance that's embedded in a web of relationships that they perceive to be caring and readily available at times of need. There are two good reasons for trying to get a better understanding of psychosocial care. First, we know that formal services don't meet everyone's needs, and of course, they're not designed to do so. Second, there is some evidence that people who are distressed may not go on to develop mental health disorders if that they're offered timely, effective psychosocial care. However, we understand relatively little about the course of distress after major incidents. So there are, we believe there's a need to better understand survivors' experiences of distress and the psychosocial care that they require from services so that we can plan and deliver more effective responses to events in future. As you said in the intro, Piyush, the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub was established in the immediate aftermath of the arena attack, and it was set up to provide a point of contact accessible by telephone or email for anyone, that's young people, parents, adults, first responders from across the country who had been affected by the event. The hub was set up to provide psychosocial support and, if required, mental health advice and referral on to primary care or specialist mental health services. At the Hub, we also invited those who contacted us to participate in an online triage programme, which, for people over the age of 18, involved completing four well-validated and widely used self-report mental health questionnaires. Uh, the GAD, which measures symptoms of anxiety, the PHQ, which measures symptoms of depression, the TSQ, which measures post-traumatic stress symptoms, and a measure of impairment in social functioning, the work and social adjustment scale. We collected scores on these measures at regular intervals online from September 2017, at about three months after the attack, through to September 2020. 1,700 adults completed these hub screening metrics at three months post-incident, and more than 2,500 had completed them by nine months. Over time, more than 3,500 people registered with the service of the hub and completed the triage metrics. So that's approximately 16% of all ARENA attendees at the ARENA. From its inception, the lead clinicians for the hub, and they came from both adult mental health and child and adolescent mental health backgrounds, recognised that the hub and its work represented a great opportunity to help us fill some of the gaps in our knowledge about the broad range of trajectories of distress after major incidents and the influences on people's coping and recovery. Hence, SIRE, the Social Influences on Recovery Programme, was born. SIRE was designed as a two-phase study. Phase one involved qualitative analysis of in-depth interviews with 18 survivors at a time point more than two years after the arena attack. The interviews in phase one produced very rich and detailed descriptions of people's experiences of distress and social support and how this influenced their coping, adaptation and recovery. And our findings are published in our two earlier papers that we submitted to the journal. Phase two was an exploratory quantitative analysis that complemented our earlier qualitative study. And the analysis is based on two data sets provided by the same participants. The first data set is a cross-sectional online survey of a convenient sample of 84 survivors of the attack that was completed in January 2020. That's three years, eight months post-incident. And this survey included measures of participants' uh, retrospective experiences of distress in the three months after the event, their exposure to any secondary stresses, 
and their perception of social support available to them. And we used unvalidated scales that were based on the analysis of the subjective accounts of the survivors that took part in our earlier interview study. The survey also included measures of identification with others who shared the experience of being at the arena and measures of personal and group efficacy in coping. Um, And these both came from established measures used in previous research. The online survey also included a validated mental well-being scale, uh, the Warwick Edinburgh Mental Wellbeing Scale. This measured participants' mental health in terms of broad categories of psychological functioning, life satisfaction, and ability to maintain and mutually benefiting relationships. And this was completed at a time point nearly four years after the event. The second data set, the longitudinal element of our study, was the same participants' contemporaneous scores on the self-report mental health questionnaires that we'd collected at the hub online from three months to three years post-incident. And these differing yet complementary perspectives enabled us to explore participants' distress trajectories and how secondary stresses, stresses and social support might have affected their coping and recovery. In both phases of SIRE, our participants were split across three subgroups of people who show personal responses typical of the three broad patterns of stress response after major incidents. That's mild, moderate and severe distress. And the subgroups were selected on the basis of the initial scores on the hub's online triage measures. The results of the hub's four measures were used to categorise people as mild, moderate and severe at three months and at every other data point thereafter. And this categorisation was based on a scoring algorithm that we developed at the hub, which was based on validated clinical thresholds to group people by severity and so assign clinical priority. We chose to explore the experience of distress across a broad range of severity so that we could compare and contrast the nature of distress within each subgroup and the trajectory of each subgroup over time. Before going on to just briefly outline the findings from our phase two study, I think I should just clarify what we understand by the term distress. As we highlight in our paper, the literature on people's common reactions has used the term distress in rather different and sometimes potentially confusing ways. Traditionally, the literature has been driven by a medical epidemiological research, which tends to focus on the identification of psychiatric disorder and draws on measures designed to identify psychopathology, such as symptoms of anxiety, depression or PTSD. And there's been less focus on the majority of people who are affected in major incidents who do not necessarily screen positive for mental health disorder or indeed meet the threshold for specialist services. For this reason, in all our papers, we advocate that the term distress is used in a different way in regard to mental health and major incidents. That is, to depict people who have a range of experiences that are usually much broader than symptoms of common mental health disorders. And there's a need to better understand these experiences using measures of distress that are less focused on symptoms and more sensitive to a broader range of experience. Turning briefly to our findings in uh, our paper, first in terms of experience of distress reported by our participants, in line with our earlier interview study, Excessive arousal and vigilance at social gatherings and in public places, fear of recurrence of the event and upsetting thoughts or images of the event were the most reported experiences of distress in our larger survey in the three months following the incident. In our earlier interview study, we also found evidence suggesting that certain initial responses, such as social withdrawal and changes in mood were associated with more severe and enduring distress, which suggested that certain early experiences might serve as markers of the risk of longer-term distress. In our survey, we found that specific post-event responses such as social withdrawal, irritability and memory difficulties were the items most associated with lower mental well-being at three years. 
And based on an exploratory factor analysis, social withdrawal and physical symptoms appears to be a genuine latent construct of post-event distress in our sample. And it accounted for 51% of the variance in distress. And this was referenced by items such as, I wanted to be alone most of the time. I wanted to drop out of social and leisure activities. And I experienced persistent physical symptoms that I didn't have before the event. However, uh, the regression analysis that we undertook showed that the social withdrawal and physical symptoms factor fell short of significance in predicting mental health well-being at three years. But two factors, impairment in everyday functioning and changes in affect, were predictive of current well-being with moderate effect sizes. And um, impairment in everyday function was referenced by items such as I had problems remembering things. I found it very difficult to concentrate and difficulties in completing everyday tasks and activities. Changes in affect were referenced by items relating to low mood, experiencing irritability and loss of temper. When it comes to the trajectories of distress and recovery, the analysis of the cross-sectional survey and the longitudinal hub data provided notable findings on the course of distress. Comparison with the population norms for the Warwick-Edinburgh our wellbeing measure showed that our sample was significantly lower than the general population of, on wellbeing, clearly indicating that the arena event continues to have an impact on survivors well-being more than three years after the event. Our participants had a mean score more than nine points below the UK national averages, and differences of three points or more are usually viewed as clinically important in outcome studies. And just under half of our survey respondents had scores below the 15th centile for the population norms in England. And previous studies comparing the Warwick Edinburgh with validated measures of depression indicated that 42% of our sample of survivors could be categorised as high risk of major depression and 60% could be considered a high risk of psychological distress and increased risk of depression. The longitude analysis of the hub data also provided evidence of enduring impairment. There were significant falls in the GAD and TSQ mean scores over time, but no significant changes in the PHQ and the work and social adjustment scale over three years. And scores in the severe distress subgroup did not reduce significantly over time on any of the hub metrics. In addition, 69% of people with a moderate or severe initial reaction were still categorised as moderate or severe on the hub metrics at three years. Therefore, slow recovery was a very common trajectory for a number of the people in the moderate group and nearly all those in the severe response groups of our sample. And maybe that's a good time for me to bring in Professor Drury to ask about the social cure. So one of the key themes discussed in the paper is the social cure. Can you tell us a bit about what is meant by the social cure? Yeah, the social cure is a way of, it describes a way that being psychologically part of a group can have uh, mental health and indeed health benefits. And there's a large body of research on this now, mostly on health, but also looking at depression, uh, anxiety, and so on. I've looked at this previously in relation to um, the acute phase of emergencies and disasters, where we find that the more that people identify with those around them and feel part of a group with them, even if they don't know them personally, they are more likely to expect help from them. Um, they're more likely to give help to each other. And those experiences of help also relate to experiences of 
group efficacy, which is the capacity to feel that you can change your situation, which is often associated with positive mental health. And indeed, all of these factors also are also associated with well-being measures in some of the studies we've been involved in. For example, um, studies we carried out on survivors of floods. So um, we thought this model might be relevant for the survivors of the Manchester Arena bombing, particularly given that we'd just finished the interview analysis of uh, a sample of survivors who described relationships with peer support groups. Now, there is a, there's a literature on peer support groups. And what the social cure approach adds to this is a bit more detail about the psychological mechanisms whereby peer support groups work or maybe don't work, because these groups that people connected with, either online or sometimes in person, were again groups of strangers. And it was the the quality of knowing that the others had the same experience as self and using that as a kind of criterion for seeing them uh, as a we or an us that seemed to be important to people uh, in sharing experiences with these others and reporting that to be beneficial. Um, people sometimes reported more problematic uh, interactions with those they expected support and understanding from, um, including family and friends, people they were already close to, but who didn't um, understand or share their previous experience of the bombing, um, whereas these strangers often did. That's not to say that groups are always good. I mean, there are drawbacks to some of these groups, and people reported that as well, as in a very open group uh, of survivors and, in fact, anyone, because if you set up a Facebook group of survivors, you can sometimes make it very open and other people can join it who might not be the people affected, might be affected by other disasters, and they might make statements that are upsetting or, or bring in information that you know you don't want to hear. So there are some of these downsides too, but there is this established relationship between seeing others as part of this uh, this same group, identifying with them, and some of these um, well-being outcomes. So we wanted to look at whether we could measure that in the survey study. Great, thanks. So how, how does that fit into then what you investigated in this paper and what, and what you found? So we took a number of measures um, based on the social cure literature. So first of all, we looked at the extent to which people in the survey identified with other survivors, uh, other people at the arena. Did you identify, did you feel part of a group with other people at the arena? As John's already said, we took some standard measures of mental health. Um, so current mental health uh, was one of the measures we, we took and we looked at other social cure, social identity mechanisms within uh, a couple of models. First of all, the extent to which people reported support from other people at the arena. You'd expect a relationship, a positive relationship between amount of identification with others from the arena and amount of support experienced from people at the arena. And the other variable we measured, as John mentioned again, was group efficacy. Um, so we took measures of all of those and we looked at their relationship. We looked at two models and the reason um, we looked at two models, because there's a question and it goes back to when I first started looking at this topic, um, one of the first studies that started me off on this was a study of the London bombings in 2005. And we interviewed survivors there. And there was a very high report rate of social support, of cooperation, examples like strangers tying tourniquets for others, sharing bottles of water. So from the most mundane to the most, you know, to life-saving interventions, uh, and just many, many reports of that kind of behavior versus very few reports of selfish behavior, such as pushing past others. And alongside that, there were very strong reports of feeling a sense of unity with these strangers. So when we asked people, well, you know, you're on a tube train, because as you might remember, the London bombings affected three London tube trains and a bus during rush hour. 
And so we asked people, well, did you feel, you know, when you were on the train before the bomb went off, how did you feel ab uh, about those around you? And they said, well, nothing really. We were trying to get from A to B. There wasn't, you know, no, no positive relationship. They were strangers to me. And then we said, well, how did you feel after the bombing? Uh, and they, took, they gave a rich vocabulary that indicated a sense, of, a new sense of unity through the experience that kind of brought them together and created a, created a, a sense that they were all in it together. And they talked about togetherness and unity and empathy and, and so on. Very, very vivid, powerful uh, accounts. So this study, like many of them, of course, almost all of them really, was quite correlational. So although... You know, some were saying, yes, the reason that I helped was because I felt, you know, this this sense of unity. You could also look at it the other way around. And the social identity approach, the social cure approach would predict that, too. And indeed, in other studies I've carried out on other crowds, I have found that opposite relationship where people see others who behave in a in a in group normative, in group supportive way, and they treat that as a criteria for um, seeing them as part of the group or strengthening that sense that they are fellow group members. So the relationship between supportive others and identification with others can go, go both ways. So we wanted to test that. Uh, and that's what we did. So we tested it both ways round. And in, in this particular instance, it was that second way round. It was the observation of others being supportive, which was predictive of the extent of identification with others affected by the arena bombing. But bear in mind, of course, that that sense of identification with others affected by the arena bombing was really high. I mean, people gave very positive high scores on that measure. So, you know, as we have found in previous studies, there was a sense that other people affected by the emergency are the same as me in some way. This sense of identification with others affected by the emergency strongly predicted a sense of group efficacy. And that is a, a very typical finding that's been found again and again in different contexts, because if other people are like me and uh, are in my group, that gives me greater capacity to do things, usually through expected support. And then finally, there was an expected and typical, again, uh, linkage between that sense of group efficacy and current mental health measures, which is a battery of measures, as we've talked about. So there was this indirect effect there, not a direct effect, but an indirect relationship between the support people experienced from other people at the arena to feeling more of a sense of identification with those others to uh, a sense of group efficacy, being able to do things, feeling a sense of agency to current mental health in line with a social cure model. Thanks. And I just wanted to clarify sort of uh, something about the implications of this for policymakers, people designing services, and I think the, the nuance that the paper conveys is kind of super important for readers to grasp, particularly those people, policymakers, people designing services, uh, because hearing that people who've been involved in a major incident find the support of others who also went the same, through the same incident most helpful might lead some people to kind of throw their hands up and say, great, let's get out of the way. Let's let them get on with supporting each other. But that's not exactly what you and this paper is, is saying. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's a great question, because the whole concept of resilience has this double edge. And you see it time and time again from the Blitz spirit, London can take it, the big society. All of these are strategies used by those in authority to absolve themselves of responsibility for the well-being and safety of their citizens. So, you know, a model of collective resilience, because that's what we're talking about here, the, the psychological capacities of people in groups to deal with, recover from, uh, show solidarity in situations of adversity is not a license or should not be taken as a license for those in authority to say, well, you can just get on with it. Because as researchers and disasters repeatedly tell us, the effects of disaster are unequal. Some people are affected more than others. They are uh, affected by dimensions of class and, and gender and ethnicity and, and so on. So some people are, are more likely to be affected. These tend to be the people with the least resources. 
right? So there is a responsibility. And so how do we understand that? Well, I would express it in terms of the scaffolding that those in power and authority can put in place to assist those groups to maintain themselves and to give support. A worked example, I mean, this applies to to the Manchester Arena bombing, but a worked example that we came across just before that was to do with the, the floods in York in 2015, where six months on from the floods, the spontaneous community group which arose at the time of the floods had started to dissolve as people had gone back to their everyday lives. But the secondary stressors, and Richard's going to talk more about this shortly, the secondary stressors that blighted people's lives, as in the, the rebuilding of their homes, were still really damaging for people's well-being and their, their lives. And they needed support. How could the groups that supported people during the acute phase, the impact phase, be kept alive? Well, there were things that participants, activists could do, such as just talk about the group, give it a name, start a Facebook group, have meetings. But if you have meetings, where do you have these meetings? They requested support from the local authority to give them space to meet, a meeting space. A meeting space would allow them to get together and at least interact, talk to each other and offer support. So a little thing like that would operate as a scaffold. And we can talk about the same thing and similar things for the Manchester Arena survivors. The interviewees we spoke to sought other survivors. How did they find them? Right? They, they did find some in the end, but that could have been made easier by some kind of mechanism by those who might have that knowledge to enable that and to set up spaces where people could meet, to set up online means, because many of these groups were online, um, online means and mechanisms for the meeting uh, of groups. We saw the same thing again with the the mutual aid groups during the, uh, the acute phase of the COVID pandemic. They wanted meeting spaces. They wanted financial support from local authorities because they were informal groups without bank accounts and and the usual support mechanisms and so on that charities have, but they were effective in their local communities just if they had a bit more resources and support from local authorities to allow them to continue doing their playing their role. So those are some of the things that the authorities can do to scaffold um, some of these spontaneous groups and post-event Thanks. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And you used the word enabling there, and that's the word used in the paper as well. So it's about kind of developing structures, services, providing resources that support people to provide that kind of peer support, peer solidarity, and 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 on the basis of that, develop that identity around supporting each other. And you mentioned secondary stresses as well. Uh, so we're going to move on to discussing secondary stresses with Professor Williams. I'm going to ask you a bit about some of the findings that I found surprising. But before I do that, can, can you just remind us what are primary and secondary stresses? Now, they've become a rather big part of my life. Uh, uh, I've had an interest in this arena for quite a long time. Uh, and it goes back to when I was an honorary public mental health and disaster psychiatrist to England's public health agency about a decade or so ago, and um, that's since become uh, the UK Health Security Agency. Um, But we started work then looking at these things, and by looking at the literature, we could see there are all sorts of comments in the disasters literature, which seem to refer to extraneous factors that seem to influence how people coped. If we come forward, Um, into the pandemic, we find surprise registered in 2020 that the primary stresses had so little impact on the variants. Now, what are primary stresses? Primary stresses are those things that come with an event, an incident, a disease process. And that's not too difficult to visualize if we just talk for a moment about COVID-19. Um, it's very clear that this was going to be and was indeed a highly lethal illness. And 
very large numbers of people who worked in healthcare as well as their patients died from it until we found uh, vaccines that were effective. But people thought those were the only variables, the sorts of things, the worries about contracting the disease yourself, about transmitting it to your families, about transmitting it to other patients that you saw who were in hospital for other reasons and uh, you might have visited, uh, uh, etc. And that's quite a narrow contrivance, really. When we looked at secondary stresses, which is the term we decided to adopt, we found, lo and behold, a huge number of different circumstances. And and, and people described them in a myriad of different ways. And in order to inject some uh, regularity into this, we'd started to call these things secondary stresses. And we published a paper in 2013 that was described our early interventions in this, and it's still much quoted. But we soon realized that there were actually limitations in that paper. And so we set to do further reviews of the literature. And in 2021, we published another paper um, in which we redefined secondary stresses. So let me just read out what the current definition is. That secondary stresses are first social factors and people's life circumstances that exist prior to an incident, an emergency, some untoward event, but which revisit them subsequently, either during that event or afterwards. And or the, the term secondary stressor may describe problems that arise from society's responses to the major incident or emergency. Let me give you two examples. First off, the book I'm reading at the moment, this is Fergal Keane's latest book titled The Madness, a memoir of war, fear and PTSD. And PTSD is greatly associated with warfare and that tracks back to the days of the Vietnam War and has a political edge to begin with, but I think is now much more substantiated by a huge volume of research that's come since. And he describes in an early chapter his horrific childhood experiences. So these days there's a huge interest in what I could briefly call adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. And it's very clear that Fergal Keane, who has a very difficult form of PTSD, which he overtly describes for himself, that ACEs were part of his life and probably sensitized him not only to what people's suffering was, which made him probably the very, very impressive journalist that he is, but also put his own mental health on the line. So things like that are indicators of primary stresses. If we come back to the COVID-19 pandemic, and we look particularly at staff in hospitals and how they coped or didn't cope, we, I mean, by and large, people coped extraordinarily well. But the PPE, the protective equipment debacle, um, I don't think will be far from many people's memories. And that seems to me to describe a secondary stressor wonderfully well. Because ineffective planning to have sufficient stockpiles of PPE is uh, the first part of the definition, but it's an and because what were societal responses to the lack of PPE? It was to commission a whole lot of development of PPE in competition with other nations, which didn't necessarily work. And I don't know of any aspect of the circumstance which was quite as powerful on the mental health of staff as the problems with PPE. But there were many other things. For instance, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had uh, the public rushing around, delivering food for staff to hospitals. And um, we had a whole lot of kindnesses, indulgences of staff. Um, England still charges for parking in hospitals for staff. And and that was 
removed for a while, but rapidly was reinstated. And that's still one of the things that irks staff now in the NHS is why are we paying for parking when we are putting ourselves on the line trying to deal with a backlog in, in waiting times? A surprisingly similar thing, simple thing, had huge impacts on people's experiences of the event. I, I said something like this at the Royal College of Psychiatrists Congress a fortnight ago. There was a ripple of anxious laughter because people recognised what I was saying was true and just how impactful and apparently trivial thing comparing that with the power of this virus was. So primary and secondary stresses. In this particular piece of research, we found that the one factor that came powering through all our analyses was having problems in your relationships with your family, the people you depended on, the people who, um, if you had a good relationship with them, great, you probably did better. But for some people, they didn't have a good background relationship. Maybe that goes back towards the ACEs, of which I've commented already, and families that had poorest socioeconomic circumstances or also um, more vulnerable. That, that's another terribly, terribly important secondary stressor. What has become apparent in looking through the research, which has come along since we popularized this, and I'm not trying to grab some responsibility for this here, it may be incidental, that paper after paper after paper is now saying similar things just how important these secondary stresses are. But pinch yourself for a moment to realize the difference between the primary and the secondary stresses. If we go back to COVID, could we do anything about the potency of SARS-CoV-2, the little virus which has caused so many problems? Probably not. But what could we do about the secondary stresses? And the answer is they're nearly all tractable. If we put our efforts behind it, we could reduce their impact. We could actually help people an awful lot by attending to these things. The question is, do we have the gross domestic product? Do we have the willingness to be able to want to do these things? And I think this research reminds us very powerfully just how important it is to take account of these things and to include seeking out and where we possibly can remedying secondary stresses in trying to prevent the progression of some people. And John Stankham has already pointed out some of the red flags uh, that we found in other domains. We need to try and intervene to prevent those red flags taking people from distress in the direction of mental disorder. And I think that by focusing on secondary stresses, we can probably move a great deal in that direction. Thanks. Yes. So you already mentioned that one of the most important secondary stresses found in this paper was with relationships. And again, it's sort of important to get the nuance of this paper and previous papers, right? Because on the one hand, we know that social support is helpful following a traumatic event. But on the other hand, we're saying that relationships are a potential kind of secondary stressor. So Dr. Stankham, can you can you kind of elaborate a bit more about what exactly in relationships can be either helpful or not helpful? Yes, we know that um, attempts at support can be helpful or harmful depending on the quality of that support. And what our findings, I think, show about secondary stresses in relation to friends and family is that poor quality informal support can exacerbate distress and prolong their recovery. Relationships with friends and family was the only factor in our study that had significant predictive value in relation to survivors' current mental health. And this um, was also a finding uh, from our earlier interview study. Um, we think that um, the quality of relationships may be a salient influence in coping and rate of recovery. 
And therefore, we'd argue that inquiring about the quality of the relationship should be more central in assessing risk and need. To do this, we, we, we advocate more narrative assessment, that is actually talking to people about their feelings and what they're experiencing, and trying to understand a little more about the uh, influence of their close relationships on their coping and recovery. So asking more questions about the support that's available to each person within their social context and any potential barriers to them actually seeking or receiving support. We found in our interview study that many people were reluctant to reveal their distress to other close members of the family for fear of uh, causing them harm or burdening them in some way. Uh, and many found it difficult to find a way of actually talking about their experiences uh, and was concerned about the, the risk of sort of being overwhelmed with, with their feelings and, and causing uh, real upset to the, uh, the people who are nearest and dearest to them. But we, we argue that it's important really to understand about the quality of these close relationships, really involve them sent more centrally in these early assessments and see if we can do more to facilitate the, the strengths from close uh, family and friends, the, the contribution that they can make really to people's coping and recovery. Can I come in at this point mm. and just uh, suggest some links between what Dr. Sankham has said and Professor Drury said? I think the social cure work provides some very good insights into why relationships with families are so important and how they're important, how the mechanisms work. So I see we I think we see this um, active in front of our eyes in real time, that it's the nature and quality of relationships that is actually saving for so many people. But if that quality isn't there and people are going through the hoops or trying to be attentive friends, colleagues, family members, and it's not inside them, then you can see why that might actually become a detriment rather than a positive facet. Yeah, I suppose that's, in terms of sort of clinical tips, and this is a question for both of you, so for sort of clinicians, whether that's doctors, psychologists, nurses, and I suppose doctors, it might be GPs rather than psychiatrists. If you're seeing someone who's experienced a major incident and you're doing your best to investigate the quality of their relationships and how exactly they're experiencing those relationships and whether they're find perceiving them and how they're finding them helpful or not. If you're getting the vibe that they're experiencing friction in those relationships and perceiving them as not helpful, what kind of interventions, what, what can the clinician do to support that person and their family members to provide a more supportive environment within the context of that relationship. I think you've touched something that's very important here. Let me just start and I'll hand over to John. The first thing to say is it's a matter of time, giving people time, which is probably the most valuable gift you can give anybody as a professional person and listening, but going beyond listening to what they say, actually hearing. And that's quite a hard, tough road actually hearing people telling you uncomfortable, unpleasant things and describing their experiences. What people seek immediately is validation, somehow a recognition by somebody who they respect that they are validly suffering because of it. They may not have a mental disorder, but they don't feel like that. So Fergal Keane's describing himself as mad here. He's not mad all the time, it's quite clear, but he feels a lot of the time as if he is. And it's. I think that's true of a lot of people who go through disastrous events. It doesn't have to be terrorism. It could be all manner of things. Is that they feel that what they're experiencing is not appropriate and they ought to pull themselves together and get on with life. Now, we had a policy of so-called normalization. Now, that doesn't help. My experience, the word normal means to people it doesn't matter. I'll get over it. I don't need any help. I don't need to be listened to. I don't need to be taken seriously. And therefore, trying to normalize somebody's experiences can be um, unhelpful, very unhelpful. It can become a secondary stressor. 
So let's. my first comment is, let's start off by getting the relationship right and spending time and listening to people. Now, I know that people in primary care don't have that amount of time. The question is then, it's a bit, and this is a big question for healthcare, how can we create that? There was some research done in Manchester many years ago, looking at children being taken to GPs. If the GP spent 20 minutes rather than five minutes with the family, they had many fewer appointments. In other words, it's get it right first time approach, because we're so convulsed with throughput in health services that the quality of that throughput often stands in second or third place. So just a few opening comments. Yeah, thanks. That was one of the most interesting things that I found in this paper was um, that people found it very invalidating to hear from the doctor something like the doctor saying, you know, it's perfectly normal to be distressed or upset after what you've been through, which is a very sort of common thing. I'm sure I've said it before in an attempt to kind of normalize what they're going through and convey some sort of yeah, it's very well uh, empathy. Um, but actually people experience that as invalidating. As distancing, as pushing you away. Yeah. Yeah. Because doctors don't deal with normal people. Yes. <laughs> that's the kind of, that's the public take on this. Um, I didn't go to see my GP to tell him I was exceedingly well kind of thing. Um, yeah. We go there because we've got a problem. And to this person who is upset, but perhaps has an inkling they're not as upset as other people, they still worry and wonder whether they are on the verge of some horrible uh, apocalyptic experience. Um, and they they want to be taken seriously. And that's that's the difficulty here. So, Dr. Stankham, did, did you have anything else you wanted to add about relationships or about, uh, about validation? Yeah, I, I think social validation, as Richard was saying, seems to be really important, both from you know, your informal network in nearest and dearest, and, and as we found from anybody that um, works within um, the helping services and the responding agencies. People talked about feeling shut down or feeling awkward if, um, if they received any form of invalidation. Um, and what, of what we call authoritative validation, that's um, coming from um, people who are in the position of offering some form of professional care. What it appeared to confer was, um, you know, positive connotations on a person's distress and their seeking support. And it also seemed to challenge any of their negative self-valuations. A lot of the people we spoke to uh were viewing their distress or their help seeking as a sign of weakness or inadequacy, and I think the the some of the power of the authoritative validation uh, relieved them of some of those feelings. And a number of people said it was really important, um, an important component of the psychosocial care that they received. And I think, as Richard was saying, it's not to be undervalued. You know, it's really, really important that everybody coming into contact. Uh, with people who are experiencing distress after major incidents, um, receives this sort of authoritative validation from uh, the people who are, are trying to be helpful. Thanks. Uh, I think we're going to have to wrap up, actually. Um, so before we do that, so Professor Williams, can you round up the conclusions and recommendations of the paper and how yes. that fits with the previous papers? Yes, um, that, that, my, my pleasure to do so. Um, We've come up with about um, eight or nine major thoughts about things. First, we were surprised by just how ubiquitous in a an unselected population of people, how ubiquitous is distress and how long it may go on and persists in a substantial minority of people. We're estimating 30 or so percent. It may go on for years, which is what we found in this study, and yet they're not ill. That social isolation is a worrying feature. People are tempted initially to separate themselves from the people who might support them. That's a worry. We've talked about validation. Let me go on to 
recognizing the importance of primary care. And yet we're not helping primary care to be effective. We need to rethink the models by which we encourage people in primary care to be in touch with people. We've talked about the importance of secondary stresses, and I can't overemphasize that. But above that, we need to work to strengthen the contributions of families, friends, and social groups. And that goes back to John Drury's points when he was talking about the social cure processes. Yes, people are very good at helping each other. They're very altruistic, but they stop being so, as we saw in the pandemic, three months after an event or something like that. And they may need assistance and support from authoritative sources to carry on doing it. So that's broadly what I think we would conclude from this. I think we would stress that this is not a definitive study. Uh, People might find flaws in it, not least the numbers of people whom we interviewed uh, and assessed. But I think these are all pointers. And as I say, the power of the literature is such that 10 years ago, perhaps we were on our own. Now we're not. Other people are saying very similar things in other circumstances. Thanks. Dr. Stankum, anything to add there? Um, Yeah, I think my big take-home message really, especially for clinicians, would be that the ways in which we understand distress has real practical implications for the way we respond to it. And for clinicians, I think that means in our assessments of distress, we've got to engage more with the meaning and detail in people's lives and try and understand better their personal, social and other factors that might mitigate or be exacerbating their distress. And in a way, that's what's, uh, you know, the traditional screen and treat algorithms that we've used to date to sort of sift and sort the people that we decide to be to offer services to fall short and you know they're designed to identify mental health disorders and um that that sort of doesn't allow us to get into the sort of detail of person's lives that we we need to understand i think to offer them appropriate psychosocial care so i would argue it's really important to broaden the scope of initial assessments particularly in those early stages to, and to include a, a wide range of manifestations of distress and pay more attention to people's um, overall function and the sort of red flags that we've talked about in terms of early signs of increased risk of enduring distress and prolonged recovery. So that, I think that would be my, my main take home is we, under, we need to understand distress in all its practical implications and that will help us think about how best to respond to it. Thanks. Um, and I, I'm not sure if the SIA study is still running, but uh, just to ask one of you, uh, it, what are the next steps for this project? And uh, do, do you have any other kind of recommendations for next steps in, in research in this area generally? I think SIA has come to its natural conclusions. Um, it was a piece of research that was uh, done really by the, the trust in-house uh, without the benefit of any form of research funding. Uh, and it just depended really on the, on the internal financial support of the trust and, of course, all the help and support that people like Richard and John and others have given us over time. There's still ongoing funded research taking place at the hub. Uh, there's a project there which is looking at the the full corpus of longitudinal data from all the registrants. That's over three and a half thousand people. And that invo- involves some of the authors on our paper, uh, but I'm not personally involved in that. I'm not sure if you are, Richard. Um, no, not really. There was a, a study of practitioners which was going to go ahead but I'm not sure where it sits at the moment that I think would be a very important ancillary but I would say that what we need to do is use mixed methods approaches like this of discerning the questions to ask by listening to people which is what papers one and two were about and in paper three we then reflected back in a questionnaire some of the findings they gave us. And I would like to see other people adopt this in other emergencies, major incidents, etc. So we can see 
how do our findings fit in with a bigger bolus of data and information? Great, thanks. Uh, I think we will have to wrap up there. Um, just for listeners, we have been talking about some difficult topics. Um, if you as a listener have found this difficult, do please have a think about what will be the best path to feeling better for you, whether that's chatting to someone you trust, going for a walk, whatever works for you. If you think you may benefit from accessing a service, the Greater Manchester Resilience Hub is still available for people who were involved in the incident. For people not involved in the incident, please speak to your own GP about what is available local to wherever you are. John, John, Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Just to remind everyone, the accompanying paper is available in the BJ Psych Open. Like all BJ Psych Open papers, it is open access. And it's called Trajectories of Distress and Recovery, Secondary Stresses and Social Cure Processes in People Who Use the Resilience Hub After the Manchester Arena Bombing. Thank you for listening to the BJ Psych Open podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online. Uh, the podcast channel actually includes podcasts from our sister BJ Psych journals as well. So you'll find loads of fascinating content. Or you can go back to older podcasts. You could even listen to Richard Williams's last appearance if you like. <laughs> uh, thanks, everyone. See you next time.